Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you would, get your Bibles out and open them up to Romans, the first chapter. Romans chapter 1. We will be there extensively this evening, and you will be most benefited by uh, acquainting yourself with the book of Romans, and I think you will understand why here in just a few moments. As you're turning to Romans, the first chapter, I will say how good it is to see you all tonight and how glad I am to have this uh, second opportunity to be together, to worship together, and to study together. hope you've had a pleasant afternoon, but I do hope that right now you are ready for some serious engagement with the Word of God. And I do mean that in just the strictest sense, to be serious in our study of God's Word, particularly as we begin this study this evening. Read with me, if you will, in Romans, the first chapter... I'm reading here in verse 16. In Romans 1 and in verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That is, of course, one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible. Many of us probably can quote that verse from memory. Yet, how much do you know about the book Romans where that verse is found? You know, in some ways, the book of Romans seems almost, almost like the moon. The moon, of course, is out there. And it's pretty interesting. And it's kind of mysterious. But it really seems like one of those things that, well, you can't just go and visit it and look at it by yourself. I mean, I don't know anybody who just has an Apollo moon rocket sitting around in their garage. Going to the moon, that's, that's complicated business. That's outside of my area of expertise. There's just no way that I could understand how to go to the moon. We, we better just leave that moon business to the experts. And I think when we come to the book of Romans, that's kind of how we are. We find a book that, yeah, that's it's pretty interesting. It's kind of mysterious. We've heard some things about Romans before. And we do know little fragments of it, like Romans 1 verse 16, or Romans 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? Or Romans 12, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. We know, everybody knows Romans 3 verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6 23, the wages of sin is death. We, we know bits and pieces of it here and there, but Romans, the epistle, the book of the Bible... We better just leave that to the experts. I just don't think I'm going to understand that. Well, is that our attitude toward this book? This book that has developed such a fearsome reputation as being one of the most difficult books in all of Scripture? You should know that when Paul wrote Romans, he was actually very excited to be writing this letter. This book just brims with excitement about the gospel from start to finish. And yes, it is the longest book that Paul ever wrote because he wanted so very much to go and share the gospel personally. He wanted to travel and be there in Rome with those brethren there. But because he's restrained, he can't get there right now. He instead sends this letter to a church that is in the very capital of the known world at that time. You think about Rome. Rome was the city. It was the place to be. It was New York City. It was Washington, D.C. It was Paris, France. It was Los Angeles, all wrapped into one. And in this letter to Christians living in Rome, 
Paul announces to them the good news of the gospel. And throughout the course of this book, he unravels and he works through the gospel how it lives and breathes in the lives of every single person who wears the name of Christ. And it is this epistle where I will be preaching for the next 12 months. Because the preaching theme for 2021 is actually not so much a theme this year as it is a chapter-by-chapter discussion of the gospel according to Romans. We're familiar with the gospel in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, but in many ways the gospel as it is painted for us by Paul in Romans is very, very unique and it is very special. At least once a month for these next 12 months, I will preach from a chapter of Romans. And you may have noticed Romans has more than 12 chapters in it, and that does mean that on certain months we will double up a little bit. But as we work along, we will get to see the good news of the gospel unfolding before our very eyes. Now, if you are a little bit daunted by the idea of a sermon series in Romans, and believe me... I am too. I'm a little bit frightened by the prospects of this year. It's taken me nearly three years to even get up my courage to attempt this tonight. But I want to share with you as we start maybe some, maybe some good news that will help to put you at ease and help to put me at ease before we ever even get started. First and foremost, you need to know that what you are holding in your lap right now is not, it is not a textbook. Romans is not a big long dissertation. You know, preachers get up and talk about the doctrinal complexity of Romans and my oh my, what a fearsome book it is. But you need to remember that before it was a book of the Bible, before it was the study material and the go-to place for smarty pantses and theologians everywhere, it was simply, it was simply a letter. It was a letter that Paul wrote to a congregation. Now, Paul did not start that congregation, but he knew people in that congregation. And the reports that he was getting from that congregation were not good. This is a church that was experiencing some turmoil. And in the first century, what happens whenever a congregation is in trouble? You get mail. You get mail from an apostle. And so Paul writes to the church in Rome a letter. And that's what you're holding in your lap right now is a letter to a local church of Christ. And that's good news because secondly, that means that it's just written to ordinary folks, to ordinary Christians like you and me. There were no expert theologians on the receiving end of the Roman letter. It was written to regular men and women. It was written to people who had jobs. It was written to people who were trying to raise families. It was even written to people who were just regular common slaves. And there were Jews in that church. And there were Gentiles in that church. There were people from every background and virtually every walk of life in that church. And Paul wrote to help them to understand how to get along and how to be the church. Which means that thirdly, that all the things that often get said about Romans the things that have been handed down for centuries, things that men like Augustine said, 
or things that John Calvin wrote about Romans or things that Martin Luther wrote and said about Romans where they took passages in Romans and they twisted them to build and to construct their big weird theologies and doctrines and it just causes all kinds of religious confusion and when we're talking with people we've almost got to unteach them stuff before we can teach them what the truth actually is. I want you to know this evening that the things that those guys have said and wrote throughout history... They're not invited to this sermon series. They can't come as we study Romans this year. With all due respect to men like John Calvin and Martin Luther, etc., I frankly don't care what they taught from Romans. What I'm interested in is what the Apostle Paul said in Romans. And so that's a fair warning to you that I'm not going to stop off every five seconds throughout the book of Romans and deal with all of the wrong and false doctrines that have been propagated throughout the centuries from this book. If we did that, number one, it would take forever. And number two, it would end up diluting and taking away from the original intended meaning to the original intended audience. What I want to do is I want to sit in that congregation with those brethren, and I want to hear what an apostle of the Lord had to say about the gospel. And so, put your toga on, strap your sandals on, and let's go sit with the brethren in Rome because we've received a letter from Paul and he wants to tell us some good news. Read with me please in Romans 1 verse 1. In Romans 1 and in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that is the longest opening to any of Paul's epistles. And right out of the gate, he makes it abundantly clear that this letter, this letter is going to be about the gospel. Verse 1, set apart for the gospel. That is a point that he will reiterate in verse 9 and in verse 15 and in verse 16. That's just here in chapter number 1. And in this introduction, Paul gives really some very helpful information about the nuts and the bolts of the gospel. First and foremost, Paul makes it abundantly clear that it is Jesus who stands at the very center of the gospel. Did you notice that seven times in those seven verses, Paul either names or references Jesus, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Lord, the Son of God, all these references to Jesus. And that's because the gospel... Yeah, the gospel is all about Jesus. There would be no good news without Jesus. Secondly, Paul points out as well that you really can't understand the gospel without knowing some stuff about the Old Testament. Would you look at verse 2 again? 
He says there that the gospel can only be fully appreciated in light of the promises made beforehand through the prophets. That's a reference to the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus, of course, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Testament prophecies, the Old Testament promises. I think about Genesis 12. I think about 2 Samuel 7, amongst many others. And understanding those things in the Old Testament, in many ways, that's what gives the gospel a lot of its force and a lot of its power and a lot of its meaning. In fact, I draw your attention to verse 3, where the Old Testament, Paul says, it bears out that Jesus is descended from David. Who's David? David was the king of the Israelite nation. That means that Jesus comes from a ruling class that is far older than any Caesar could claim. He is a descendant of the mighty King David. Think about, as this letter is being read in the Roman church, think about how that would have caused many of the Jewish Christians in that congregation probably to to smile a little bit, probably to feel pretty good. Yeah, Jesus, he comes, from, he comes from our stock. He's one of ours. And think as well about how that claim that Jesus is descended from David, how that claim to ancient royalty, how that really would have resonated in Rome where the Caesar lived. Think about how that might have caused a little bit of tension there. Finally in this connection, notice how Paul says, when he talks about the gospel here, Paul actually says that we play a part in the gospel. Now, I want to be very clear, and I think Paul is going to make clear, that the gospel primarily is not about us. It's not. Primarily, the gospel is about who? Well, point number one, it's about Jesus. That's who the gospel is about. But Paul does begin here in chapter 1, one of the dominant themes in Romans, when he says there in verse 5 that we are recipients of God's grace in order to bring about the obedience of faith. Paul says that God showers His grace upon us, and we in turn, we do what He says. We bow our knee in submission to Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Lord, Jesus the Son of God, Jesus the Son of David. We obey the gospel. That's what that's all about. Now, right here, after the first seven verses, this is where Paul kind of begins to change gears. In fact, there's almost kind of a change in tone. Because what started here in the first seven verses, as Paul is proclaiming the facts of the gospel, leads to Paul now saying some things about his eager longing and his desire to be with the brethren in Rome personally. How he wants so very much to deliver the gospel to them face to face. And so he writes, verse 8... Continue reading with me in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. You can tell that Paul's just thought about this a lot, about going and being with the brethren in Rome. Verse 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. 
I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, that is to non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. And so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Let's just work right here for a moment. Would you notice in verse 8 once again where Paul says, and I want you to underline this, Paul says, I thank God for all of you. One of the important ideas that Romans is going to convey to us is that the gospel, the gospel is for everybody. It is. It's for everybody. It's for Jews. It's for Gentiles. It's for Greeks. It's for non-Greeks. It's for the educated. It's for the uneducated. Through the gospel, everybody has the chance to have a place in God's kingdom. And it is evident that the church of Rome, in Rome had a lot of diversity. You had people from a lot of different places, people from a lot of different upbringings, people with maybe even a lot of different religious backgrounds. And they are all now here in this big melting pot known as the church. And we see that even just in those verses. We'll see it even more as we continue on through Romans. In fact, in many ways, the verse that maybe is most important to us understanding the reason for Paul writing the letter to the Romans, that verse is actually not in Romans. That verse would actually be in the book of Acts. Would you find the book of Acts, please? Look in Acts, the 18th chapter. In Acts chapter 18, this is a verse that maybe you want to, I don't know, write out next to it. You might want to write the book of Romans next to it. Or maybe in Romans chapter 1, just make a note about Acts chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. Read with me, if you will, in Acts chapter 18 and in verse 1. There we are told, after this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Notice this, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and so Paul went to see them. Now that right there, that last statement at the end of verse 2, is really worth underlining in your Bible. We actually know a fair amount about this edict that Claudius had made. And we know that because of some external historical writings outside of the Bible. We know, for example, that there was rioting in Rome amongst the Jews concerning one named Crestus. Now, most scholars tend to believe that this Crestus is actually just Christ. There was rioting about Christ. And that does make sense, particularly when you read in the book of Acts and you see what happens whenever the gospel comes to new towns. Doesn't it? Here's the pattern in the book of Acts. We'll see this in our Wednesday night studies. The apostles come to a town. Paul comes to a town. Peter comes to a town. They preach the message of Jesus Christ. Some people accept it, and that's wonderful and that's great, but then many others do not accept it. And before you know it, tempers start to flare from the unbelieving sect of folks. Many times that was Jews. And they start creating commotion. They start creating all kinds of, of, of hoopla and ballyhoo going on. Word then gets back to the Caesar about all the kerfuffle that's going on down there. Claudius says, hey, what, what's all the fuss about down there? What are these people making a big commotion about? And somebody says, I don't know, fussing over somebody named Crestus or Christus or Christ or something like that. And Claudius says, well, I'll fix that. I'll just grab up all these Jews and I'll ship them out of here. And that's exactly what he did. That's exactly what Acts 18 verse 2 says happened. 
All those Jews that were living in Rome at that time, they had to leave. And if you wanted to put a date on that, that'd be around 49 A.D. And so when Paul writes the letter to the Romans, it's a few years later. That edict had actually been relaxed because Claudius had died and the next Caesar, which was Nero, he let the Jews come back to Rome who lived there and that puts us at about 54 AD. Now, with all that information, I want you to now just imagine how that would have affected the church in Rome. Just try to picture what you've got going on in that congregation. The church most likely, as many of the other churches in the first century did, probably started with a very Jewish flavor. And after all, the Jews are usually the first folks you're going to go to with the gospel. They're the folks who know some stuff about the one true and living God. Those are the people who have an understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures. Those are the people who are looking for the Messiah. And that seems to be the pattern in the first century world. you got Jewish folks who become Christians and they begin that congregation. But then of course over time what you end up having is you start to have Gentiles who are converted. And they're then added to the congregation. They then join and they're part of that body. And they begin to learn and they begin to grow and probably a lot of that growing is at the feet of their Jewish brethren. But then all of a sudden, all of a sudden this riot breaks out and now by edict of Claudius, imperial edict, all the Jews, they have to leave. They have to get out of there. And what does that leave? What that leaves is an entire congregation of Gentiles. What you maybe had in the beginning was kind of a mix, but now you've got 100% Gentiles in that church. And all those people, they got to step up. They do. Five or six years without any of their Jewish brethren. These Gentile brethren, they're going to have to step up. Some of them are going to have to step up and take some leadership positions. Somebody's going to have to step up and start running the worship. Somebody's going to have to be the one to teach the gospel. Somebody's going to have to be the one to jump in there and start taking care of everything. They've got to keep on serving the Lord, got to keep on being the church, which means this church that began with a very Jewish flavor over this five or six years of time is going to eventually start to develop a very Gentile flavor. But then one day... The edict is relaxed. And now all the Jews, they get to come home. Can you imagine how that probably went? The Jews show back up in the meeting place of the congregation in Rome. Um, hey fellas, uh, we're back. We're here. We're ready to resume our place in the church. You know, if you Gentile folks, if you guys will just kind of take a step back... You guys just go back to sitting down and let us do the teaching. Let us do the leading here. Hey, we'll take it from here. We'll get this church back to doing things in a very Jewish way, respecting some Jewish customs. We'll run things the way that they're supposed to be ran. You guys just step aside. Can you probably hear maybe some of the Gentile brethren saying in response, um, yeah, we're, we're, we're doing just fine. We're doing okay here. You know, hey, we've held down the fort here for the last five or six years now. We're doing okay. You guys maybe take a seat. And it is that friction. It is that back and forth. It is that conflict. It is that strife that really provides the entire impetus for Paul writing this letter to that congregation. This epistle is all about unity and how these people needed to have unity, and the gospel makes it possible for them to have unity. Unity, in many ways, I maybe would argue, it is the dominant theme 
in all of Romans. All throughout the book, Paul's going to show why they should have unity and furthermore, he's going to show how it can be achieved. And that's why when we are reading along in Romans, we want to take note of all those places where Paul uses phrases like all of you and every man. He's trying to address everybody in that church. Paul is concerned with showing that all people are loved by God and all people need Jesus Christ because the gospel is for everyone. Paul's going to make a plea for unity in the gospel by repeatedly pointing out, you Jews and you Gentiles, you're not any different. You're not. You're all the same before the Lord. And we're all Christians now, so that means we all need to work together in unity. And that's because the gospel has the power to save everybody. That's verse 16 now. Let's grab that famous passage once again. Verse 16, as you turn back to Romans chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Do you see once again right there? Right there in verse 16 that the gospel is, it's for all. It's for all who believe. I want you to please notice in verse 16 that the gospel is not merely a bunch of facts that need to be believed. And it's not just a bunch of words that the preacher gets up and says, or even if you're sharing the gospel with somebody else, here's all the words you need to say. The gospel is what, according to verse 16? According to verse 16, it is the power of God. That's an amazing statement. You've probably heard preachers say before that the Greek word there for power is the word dunamis. And that is where our English word uh, is derived, the word dynamite or dynamo or dynamic. And sometimes preachers will say the gospel is God's dynamite. Well, that's reading a very modern idea into an ancient text and maybe we ought to be careful about that. But there is no doubt Paul is saying the gospel is extremely powerful. And why? Because it possesses God's power to save anyone. Anyone who believes, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Greek, whether you're white, whether you're black, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're a male, whether you're a female, educated, uneducated, God's plan of salvation, it is open and available to all people. This is not about how God has so much love for the Jews to the exclusion of the Gentiles. That's what the Jews thought. And this isn't about how God is now going to accept the Gentiles into His kingdom. Now the Jews, well, sorry, you guys got to leave. No. God wants all of them. God wants to save everybody who will believe and who will trust in Him. Furthermore, verse 17, we find out that the gospel, the gospel reveals to us the righteousness of God. Now this is an idea that Paul will develop later in the letter about how sinful people are not right in and of themselves. None of us are right in and of ourselves. None of us can make ourselves right. Rather, we are made right with God whenever we find forgiveness of our sins. And the gospel is going to reveal how God does that, how He makes people right. 
The gospel shows us what it is that we need to know about Jesus, about our Savior, something that we never would have been able to figure out on our own. Nobody's smart enough. Nobody is wise enough to be able to figure out the plans of God on their own. We need the gospel. From faith, verse 17, from faith, that's that's the source of faith, God, to faith, that's our faith. The gospel is designed to create and nurture and grow within us faith in God. Would you please notice once again in verse 17, that expression, as it is written. Remember how we said earlier that the Old Testament really is designed to help us understand the gospel? Paul already here, he's pushing this idea. He quotes here from Habakkuk chapter 2 and in verse 4 that the righteous will live by faith. If you know the book of Habakkuk, then you know the story in Habakkuk is that the prophet is struggling. He is struggling with how God is doing things, how God is working things out in the world. Why, Why does it seem like evil is always prevailing? Why does it seem like God isn't doing anything about that? Lord, what are you doing? And the answer that Habakkuk ultimately arrives at is that I'm just going to have to trust the Lord. I don't understand everything that the Lord is doing, so I need to trust Him. I need to put my faith in Him. And so it is with the gospel. The gospel helps to create and nurture and build faith within us. I am going to trust in God's power. I am going to trust in God's promises. And in the meantime, as I'm trusting I'm just going to do what he says. That's part of faith. It's living obediently to him. The gospel provides us with the faith to live for God each day. Now, after telling us all of those things about the gospel in kind of an introductory, explanatory sort of way, I fully expect that the next thing that Paul is going to do, he's given all these great descriptions about the gospel, I fully expect the next thing out of his mouth is he's going to give a full explanation of this good news. He's going to tell us the the content, the meat of the gospel. He's going to tell us furthermore how it is that we obey the gospel. He's going to give us all those important details that we need to know about the gospel. And so Paul, tell us the good news. We're ready to hear that good news. Verse 18... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What? 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 Paul, what are you doing here? The wrath of God? What is? I thought you were here to tell us some good news. Isn't that what the word gospel means? What exactly is going on here? Yeah, Paul is here to tell us about the wrath of God. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What Paul is keenly aware of is that this good news of the gospel, that good news only works whenever we first understand the bad news. We have to see our need for the gospel before it's ever going to do us any good. And why exactly do we need the gospel so badly? Well, as verse 18 begins to point out, our sin, it causes us to incur the wrath of God. That's what sin earns us. It earns us God's wrath, and as Paul will say later in Romans, it earns us death. And so what Paul does in these remaining 15 verses, the second half of Romans 1, 
is he just lays out the bad news. And the bad news is we are sinners. We're sitting in the church at Rome. We're reading this letter for the first time. Got a mix of Jews and Gentiles. Paul's message is, is that you are sinners. On your own, you would never be able to make yourself right with God. On your own, you are unrighteous. On your own, you are ungodly. On your own, you fail to worship God and honor God and thank God. On your own, you mistreat other people. And on your own, you mistreat the God who made you. And because of all those things, that makes God extremely unhappy. In fact, it makes Him angry. That's the reason Paul uses the word wrath. And while we often think about God extending punishment and judgment on people, and we think about that as being something that, well, God's going to do that later. You know, in judgment day, God's going to punish all the sinners. What Paul points out in this passage is that even right now, God is punishing sin. God is giving people over to sin and all of the trouble that sin brings with it. Three times in this chapter, we'll read in just a second, and you just note all of these. Three times in this chapter, Paul is going to say that people exchange God's glory for idolatry. It is no coincidence that I preached on idolatry this morning. And each of those three times, Paul is going to say that God gave them up to their wicked and ungodly desires. And so what Paul does, beginning in verse 19 is he just diagnoses the problem. And I want you to know before we even read this, that the problem is not a lack of information. It's not a lack of knowledge that causes people to sin. I think sometimes that's how we kind of tend to diagnose things. Oh, well, the reason he messed up is because oh, he just didn't know. He didn't know any better. He didn't have all the information that he needed. Nope, not according to Romans. Not according to what Paul says here. Paul says in Romans 1 that despite the information that we had, we still made the clear decision to do what we wanted. And so, verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, they have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And so, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Would you notice in verse 20 that the evidence for God, it is visible. It is all around us, Paul says. It is observable in the natural world in creation. In the world in which we live, the universe in which we reside, God's work is clearly seen. And even though He is invisible, the evidence for Him is everywhere. His fingerprints are on everything. And so as a result, Paul says, there is no excuse there is no excuse for anyone to live in sin and then somehow in the end they're going to be able to plead ignorance. Nope. Paul says that'll never fly. That'll never happen. Furthermore, he does begin to talk here about the issue of idolatry, exchanging God's glory for idolatry. And I want you to understand this evening 
that the problem of idolatry... We sometimes read this passage, the the last half of Romans chapter 1, and we talk about this is how God felt, and this is God's judgment on Gentile people. But I preached this morning about idolatry, and who was it that I said had the biggest problem with idolatry throughout the Old Testament? It wasn't Gentile people. Yes, Gentile people had a problem with it. But in the Old Testament, God is particularly displeased with Jews, people who knew about God. They're the ones who were involved in idolatry. And that ought to just sound as a sobering warning to each and every one of us. Israel did have a terrible history with idolatry and many of these other sins that Paul is going to detail, but it is a mistake for us to just read these verses and say, oh, that's, this, this was problems for pagan people. No, 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 no. These problems that Paul talks about in this passage, these sinful things, these are problems for all people. Just as the gospel is designed to save all people who believe, it is because all people are sinners. This isn't a Jew thing or a Gentile thing. He continues on in verse 24. In verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Can I just interject right there in verse 25? That if we read there, when we read that they serve the creature rather than the Creator, if we read that verse and we think that creature is talking about an idol, then we've missed it. It's not talking about that they built some idol and they worshipped it. The creature there is who? Self. They worship self rather than their Creator. Verse 26, For this reason... God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women, and they were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now Paul's going to list off a whole bunch of other sins in these remaining verses, and we'll get to those in just a moment. But our attention does immediately get drawn here to the fact that Paul spends like three or four verses talking about the sin of homosexuality. You know, Paul will mention things like murder and other things that we would consider to just be terrible, but he just devotes like one word to those. And so we maybe are kind of wondering, why is Paul really kind of hounding on this homosexuality business? Well, I want you to understand that Paul addresses homosexuality in this this matter because to Paul, homosexuality represents a world that has gone wrong. Nothing could be clearer proof to him of the depravity to which idol worship leads us than homosexuality. Nothing shows more obviously that our world is backward and confused than the sin of homosexuality. But here's the kicker. Paul's point as he talks about homosexuality is not to point the finger at these just terribly wicked people who are involved in homosexual behavior and us to look at them and say, man, they are so bad. Those are the worst. Those are the most awful people in the whole world. That's not the point Paul's working for here. What Paul wants his readers to see is that they and the sins that they commit... They are just as bad and they are just as ready to incur the wrath of God even as their homosexual neighbor. All sin will incur God's wrath. 
Let's continue reading verse number 29 or 28, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. I will confess to you this evening that while I have never been guilty of being involved in the sins that are talked about in verses 26 and 27, I painfully acknowledge that I find myself multiple times in verses 28 through 32. And that's the point that Paul's working for here. Sinners, sinners are incurring the wrath of God. But the message of the gospel is that wherever you fall in there, whatever kinds of sin that you have committed and done against the God of heaven, there is hope to be found in Jesus Christ. And as Paul writes to this church that's experiencing some troubles and some turmoil here in Rome, you have people who maybe are kind of looking across the aisle at their brother and they're thinking, oh, those dirty, rotten Gentile folks. Yeah, they're Christians now, but they're kind of lesser than. And the folks over here kind of looking across at the Jews, all oh, look at them, so arrogant and so haughty. They're just so awful and terrible. Paul wants them to see that they are all in the same boat. And that message continues to ring true for you and I even to this day. And if by chance Paul's readers, or even you and I today, if somehow we miss that point, then Paul is going to make that crystal clear in chapter 2. And Lord willing, next Sunday, we will talk about Romans chapter 2. We are all sinners. And we all know that God is there and that we all have done wicked things against Him. We have not honored God as we should. We have not acknowledged God as we should. And that is why we need the gospel because without it we would be completely and totally lost. Now, in many ways that's kind of a down note to end this lesson on because, well, chapter 1 does end on kind of a down note. But I'll just say once again that you really can't appreciate the good news until you do hear that bad news. And when you do understand the bad news that I am outside of favor with God. I'm not in a right relationship with Him. And it's my sin that caused it. And there's no excuse for it. And I can't rationalize that away. There's no explanation for it. When you come to that realization, then when the good news does come, oh, it's just the best news in the world. We all love good news. And as we extend the invitation of Jesus Christ, that is what we are extending and that is what we are offering. We are offering to all the good news of the gospel. Salvation is available to anyone who is willing to come to Jesus, to trust in Him, to be obedient to faith. Can we help somebody this evening to be in a right relationship with God by becoming obedient to Him? Jesus is the way. He is the only way. And all things are ready this evening for you to become a child of God.
to confess your faith in Jesus as Lord and to be baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins. We're ready to assist you and to help you to take those steps. Brother or sister, if there is sin that has crept back into your life and you have not been serving the Lord faithfully as you know that you should, it's time to understand the power of obedience once again and what it is to serve God as a child of His. Can we help somebody tonight to repent, to pray for you, encourage you, help you to serve the Lord in a better way? Whatever your need may be, the gospel is calling you and it's calling you right now. Do something about that while we stand and while we sing.